Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. Habits can be useful when they are helping you to achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. But sometimes, as we all know, habits can get in the way. We overeat or we drink too much or we're continuously late for things or we smoke cigarettes. Whatever the thing is, whatever your your vice is, it's probably a habit that you would, if not necessarily completely eradicate, probably it's something you'd like to be able to get your head around to be able to control it. And in his book, The Power of Habit, the author Charles Duhigg talks about what habit is, uh, how they form in our brain, and how to get rid of them. And he tells lots of stories about things that have happened over the years where people have got into very serious and dangerous situations because they're just following a habit. One of the things that he says about uh, habit is that they're, they can be very useful sometimes. And really what it does is to do with um, your brain not being overloaded. It's like cognitive uh, overload or something it's called. And he talks about opening a door. Now, as you can probably imagine, opening a door is not that difficult, right? If you've seen a door before, you've, you've seen one, you've seen them all, right? That's the, the, the kind of the point of it. His point in the book is that if you, if you approach a door that you've never seen before into a building that you've never been into, for example, and you need to figure out how to open that door, if you need to figure out how to open a door from scratch every single time, then you're going to be forever getting wherever it is that you need to go. His point is that habits, they go, oh yeah, I know what, I know what a door is and I pull the handle down and I push it and I pull it and do whatever it is I need to do to get through a door. If you had to figure out every door every single time you met a new one, you'd be forever, like I said, trying to get anywhere. So that's kind of like a habit. That's like it reduces the cognitive load. You make assumptions, uh, things happen, uh, you react and you get whatever it is, the thing that you're looking for. An example he gives, or actually I shouldn't say it's an example, it's kind of like the the core of the book is the, the what he calls a three-part loop. Three things that happen. And those three things together essentially are habits. So the first part is what he calls an external cue. And he gives the uh, example of an alarm clock. So the alarm clock goes off and if you're not like me or my lovely wife, you will hit snooze 15 times and then, oh, right, I better get up. Some people jump out of bed straight away. Whatever the, the external cue is for you, you react to it, right? So the cue goes off, the alarm clock, for example, goes off. Then you perform the routine. You perform the activity. So whatever it is that you do, and you, you get up in the morning, go into the bathroom, brush your teeth, go and make the coffee, get dressed, whatever the process is, whatever the activity is, you're generally on autopilot in that time in the morning. And then you get your reward, that feeling of success. Right, And that reward could be, in this particular instance, it could be leaving the house on time and knowing that you're not going to forget everything because you followed the routine, because you followed the habit. So this three-part loop can be obviously very useful. It can get you out of the house on time, but it can also be something that can uh, be detrimental to your, to your mental health, to your physical health. It could be something as simple as every time I go to the pub, I have uh, three cigarettes with every pint that I drink, for example, that could be a habit that you might want to break. So his point in this book is that the the key thing with any habit is that three-part loop, the external cue, the routine that you fall into, 
and that feeling of success, the reward. Now, when it comes to breaking a habit, you're probably thinking that the external cue is what you need to change. Whereas, in fact, he says that's not what you need to change. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. He tells all sorts of uh, stories. And, and like every, every podcast I do, this is a great book. Uh, I, I say about every single book that, that I do. I wouldn't do it. If it I didn't, wouldn't do an episode on it if it wasn't a, a good book. But he tells brilliant stories in this book about um, well, the first thing he says is like, you know, about mice and um, they're put into a maze and they go looking for chocolate and uh, mice seemingly like chocolate. So they, they are happy to go and look for this chocolate, that chocolate, they can smell it. And uh, they go along the, um, the maze and they find the chocolate. But what they realize in these mice is that their, their brain activity decreases when they, when they know what the story is, when they know what the gig is, right? They're going to get into this maze. I go down here, take two lefts and a right, and then I'm going to be at the chocolate. And what they realized about their brain activity is that it decreased. That when somebody is following a habit, there's less cognitive load, right? There's less overload on the brain. And I, can, I don't even have to think. I just need to go through these things and uh, uh, I'll get my reward at the end. And they call it chunking, right? This idea of... Actually, now that I think about it, Tony Robbins talks about chunking. Like a lot of the time people say they want to get fit, but then they, they put up all sorts of barriers for themselves where they will, um, you know, they want, I want to go to the gym, but I have to go and have to find my, my, my gym bag and my, my, my runners and oh, I haven't got a clean t-shirt and I need to bring a towel and then it's going into the car and I have to drive to the gym. Then I have to get changed and blah, blah. And they go through all these things and, and people put up these, these reasons as to why it's such an effort to go to the gym. But we all know people who go to the gym and it's just part of their routine. It's part of their life. It's part of what they do because what they've done in their head is it's just, it's, it's non-negotiable in the first place for most of these people. But it's also, uh, they've chunked it into just a habit. It's also, it's almost like uh, being on autopilot where they don't necessarily even consider what they're doing. They don't necessarily even consider that they have to go and find their gym bag or their runners and drive to the gym and all that. They, they, they chunk it all into go to the gym, work out, go home. It's going to take me two hours and that's just what's going to happen. So this idea of chunking is, uh, it reminds me of something else. I, I think I might have talked about this in a, in a podcast before about Darren Brown. And I know there's um, people listening to this from, from the US and actually from all over the world and India and everywhere. But uh, Darren Brown is a, an English guy, absolutely brilliant um, entertainer and he calls himself a mentalist and what that really means is he kind of plays does magic tricks but also does like psychological tricks on people and he he didn't invent this thing i'm about to say but he it's the first time i saw it was him doing it it's called a snap induction now that i'm saying it i think i have said it on a podcast before i can't remember which episode it was but uh, a snap induction is when you can hypnotize somebody uh really quickly and the way you do it is by, should I say this or not? <laughs> you can go and practice, I don't know. You can see if it works for you or not. But uh, the way you do it is by, you know when you go to shake hands with somebody, uh, if you're at a networking conference or whatever it is that you're at, you go to shake hands with somebody and they put their hand out, your hands meet, you grasp each other's hands, you can go up and down a couple of times and then you both let go. And you say, nice to meet you, whatever the, whatever the phrase is that you have. Obviously, in this day and age with COVID-19 kicking around the place, there's not many handshakes going. 
And we might never go back to handshakes and snap induction might be done for. But let's imagine that in the future you do shake somebody's hand. A snap induction is about interrupting that process. It's about interrupting that chunking, right? Because when somebody when somebody steps forward to shake hands with you, you don't think, what the hell are they pointing their hand at me for? You, you know what's happening. And you go into that routine of just grasping their hand, going through the handshake and letting go. And you always notice when somebody does something weird in a handshake, somebody who doesn't grasp the hand correctly, or if you've ever met somebody who, who does the side to side handshake, it's the weirdest thing. Or the Donald Trump one where they yank you towards them, um, which is also um, a weird power move. But the way that Darren Brown interrupts this pattern is he, he'll just do something to interrupt this, this chunking, this habit, this routine. And it could be something as simple as, as he goes to shake hands with you, so let's say he reaches out with his right hand, just before you go to grasp his hand, he'll use his left hand to take your wrist, the wrist that you're about to shake hands with. And what he'll do is he'll take that hand, which now is completely thrown you because you are like, well, this is, your brain just kind of gets short-circuited and you, you can't figure out what's happening just for that split second. And in that split second, the, the theory is that your brain is looking for anything that makes sense. Your brain just needs to get back to, to zero, right? It needs to kind of uh, be grounded and kind of make sense of things because it's, it's like the routine that was doing on autopilot has now been interrupted. Uh, we need to reset everything, find anything that makes sense, and we'll build from there. That's kind of what the, the idea of what happens in your brain. So he, he'll grab your wrist, not, not for, you can look this up, it's, it's a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, he grabs somebody's wrist and uh, you can do anything from there. And what Darren Brown often does is he kind of, like let's imagine he was doing it to you. He would take your hand that you were, you were about to shake hands with and he'd slowly just bring it up towards your own face. So your palm is facing you while you're looking at your own palm. And he might very gently point at the palm of your hand and say, just look here. And you don't know what's happening. The, the hand is just coming slowly up towards your face. And he'll kind of bring your own hand in closer towards your face. And so I've seen him do this before where at the last second, he'll just very gently just tap your hand against your own forehead. <laughs> like what you do with younger brothers and sisters and go, why are you hitting yourself, right? That kind of thing where he just kind of taps your hand against your forehead. And as that happens, he'll give you a command. And the command could be something as simple as sleep. Now, if somebody is very susceptible to this, this kind of uh, suggestion, people just automatically sleep because remember what they're looking for is something, anything that makes sense. So when they're given a strong command like that, they just f fall into this deep relaxation and he does what he needs to do then, uh, steals your watch or makes you think you're a chicken or whatever it is, the thing that he does. But that happens all the time. Um, not snap inductions, but uh, <laughs> what happens all the time is that... Uh, we're running routines, like the alarm clock goes off, you get up out of bed, into the bathroom, go down and make the breakfast, make the kids lunches, whatever it is that you do, it's all routine, you you get your coffee in the same place every day, you uh, probably take lunch at the same time every day, you just kind of fall into this routine. And the reasons that we fall into these routines, or as he talks about in the book, into these habits, is because you are, you don't want cognitive overload. Um, who is it? It's uh, uh, the Facebook fellow, what's his name? Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg wears the same clothes every day, so he doesn't have to think about what he's going to wear. Um, 
you know, they call that a life hack or whatever, but he, he got that from, I think, Steve Jobs used to do the same thing or somebody else used to do the same thing. Just wear the same thing every day. You don't even have to think about then what you're, what you're wearing. You can focus on the job at hand or whatever the job at hand happens to be. He talks about a guy called, um, in the book, and back to the book now, The Power of Habit, he talks about uh, a guy called Eugene who had some very severe brain trauma and I think what happened was his short-term memory um, was completely shot. He just could not uh, remember anything from like minute to minute kind of thing. But he knew where to go in his own house when he was hungry. He would automatically kick into this routine where when he felt hunger, he'd just get up and go into the kitchen, make a sandwich and, or do whatever it is that he, he would do when he was hungry. And they realized that there's a, a, a part of the brain called the, the basal ganglia, I believe it's called. And this is where habits are formed and the rest of the brain can be damaged and this bit works just fine he also talks about in the book the the reason why habits especially bad habits are so hard to kick is because we crave that reward part of the uh, of that that three-part loop the external cue the routine and the reward what's the thing that we get at the end the reward uh, so kicking habits is hard because you're, you're, you're craving that reward part. Also, and this is, and everyone knows this from when you, when you think about, um, things that you're looking forward to, the anticipation of something that you're looking forward to can be, can be almost as good as the thing itself, whether it's, uh, meeting your friends for drinks or going to a sporting event or uh, whatever the thing is that you enjoy. You'll, you'll always find that the anticipation of these things is almost as good as the thing itself. Like the, It's like watching the build-up to a match. Like a lot of the time people will... I'm thinking about myself here, really. I, like I don't watch that many uh, soccer matches. I watch NFL and I watch UFC a lot. But I love the, I love the build-up to these things. I love the build-up to the fight. I love listening to people being interviewed and people talking about what's, going, what's likely to happen and so on. Those things are brilliant. So... What I what I love is the is the anticipation of these things as much as the thing itself. So, when it comes to breaking these habits, right? If you think about that three part loop, the external cue, whatever the thing is that happens, meeting your friends for drinks, the um, you know what I, I don't want to get into what bad habit somebody might have, but just think about a bad habit that you have yourself. What's the external cue that that you know is going to end up with you? Uh, performing this routine, this task, uh, this bad habit. So you have your external cue, then your routine, and then your reward. And what the author Charles Duhigg says is that if you want to change a habit, you need to change the routine. So it's not the external cue that you need to change. It's the, it's the routine that needs to change. And change can happen uh, through focus on the keystone habits and the small wins. And so what I understand that to mean is that the keystone habits are the things like, well, I always go out on a Friday night and uh, no matter what, I'm going to find somebody to go out on Friday nights after work. But maybe that's a bad habit for you. Maybe maybe things always don't end particularly well or whatever, right? Whatever the thing is, is it a keystone habit? Now, in the book, he goes into a bit more detail what a keystone habit is, but a keystone is something that kind of holds all the other habits together. So it could be that you're ordering junk food every Saturday night, right? Rather than, um, you know, the routine could be that, well, I'm going to 
make my own junk food. Like that's something I started to do. <laughs> I'm a big fan of junk food, pizza in particular, but I would always try and make my own. Um, so it, it kind of slows you down anyway, um, ordering the, the stuff that you shouldn't be ordering. But it, it, by changing the routine, uh, you're redirecting the craving ultimately. You're still, you're still getting the reward that you're looking for. But by changing the keystone habits, uh, you change your routine and you're kind of redirecting the craving. And that's the, the idea. One of the things he says in the book that I actually I don't necessarily agree with is that willpower is the most important keystone habit. I actually don't believe in willpower. I don't believe that willpower is, is, um, is something that's that useful. And I'm open to correction on this. I'm open to having a discussion with anybody on this. But here's my understanding of what willpower is. Willpower suggests to me that there is something you want to achieve, but you, you're going to fight against your natural instinct. Let's, let, let me give you an example. Let's say you want to get absolutely ripped. Right? I want to get as fit as I can possibly get. And I'm going to use willpower to get that done. And willpower to me means, well, I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to force myself to do it. And to me, that's backwards. I think the idea should be that I really do want to do this. I truly 100% do want to do it. So willpower isn't necessarily uh, the thing that's going to get it over the line. I think what you want to do is you want to try and not let future you sabotage it because future you is lazy future you doesn't want to go to the gym future you doesn't want to um make their own junk food from scratch future you wants to have six cigarettes with every pint right future you is what is what is going to thwart you and you need to make sure that the future version of you is uh is not allowed to make the decision i don't think willpower comes into that i don't think willpower i think it's a different it's a different frame of mind. I need to make sure that, let's say, for example, I'm going to go to the gym before work when the gym's open again <laughs> after uh, the coronavirus. But let's let's imagine I, I, I start work at, say, 9 o'clock and I want to be in the gym for 6.30 in the morning. I know when the alarm clock goes off at 6 a.m., the future version of me at 6 a.m. is going to go, fuck that, and get straight back into the bed, pull the covers back over my head. I'm not going anywhere. So what I need to do, this is just my own thought process on this, I believe what you need to do is make sure that the future version of me has as few excuses as possible. And that could be having the, the, the gym gear right beside the bed. So as soon as I step out, I'm stepping into a pair of shorts and pulling them up, putting a t-shirt on, my shoes are right there, socks, everything. The gym bag is at the front door. Um, I've absolutely no excuse. The gym bag is packed at the front door, even in the car already. I know exactly where the car key is. Uh, the house keys, I have everything I could possibly need. Bottle of water. And all I need to do is just get that first step completed. That's what I think is, is, is important. It's not necessarily to do a willpower. It's to do it making sure that the future version of you doesn't get in the way. I also think a lot of the time, and I guess it kind of comes back to that, this idea of chunking, this idea of kind of putting all these things rather than saying I have to get my shorts and then my t-shirt and my socks and my shoes, chunk that into I just have to get dressed. I think maybe sometimes what I, I do is that let's say you are going to go to the gym or even just go for a walk or whatever, allow yourself to drop out after you've completed the next stage. That's what I think is a key thing as well, that 
let's say it's it's going to the gym at 6 a.m. I I will allow myself to not go to the gym once I have gotten dressed. You have to pull the covers back. You have to put the, the clothes on that are on the floor there beside the bed. And then if you really don't want to go, you can kick your shoes off and get back into bed in the gym gear. But generally what you'll find is that momentum starts to build. And I think that's hugely important as well, is that, well, if I have the, the, the gym gear on, well, then I can go downstairs and I can, I've set the coffee machine to make me coffee for, for 6.05 and that's done now. And I can, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pour the coffee and I'm going to start sipping the coffee. If I really don't want to go, then I'm not going to go. Well, I'm just going to go to the gym and maybe I'll go to the gym and I'll just sit in the, uh, the sauna for 40 minutes and come home again. But once you get there, you think, well, maybe I'll lift weights for, for 10 minutes. And then before you know it, you've worked out and you're, you've, you've achieved it. I think that's important as well, is to have those small wins. And it's something I do agree with, he says it in the book, is having these uh, these small wins along the way. Achieve, always allow yourself to give up, I think, if you're after you've achieved the next thing. And if you really and truly don't want to go, then forgive yourself. That's what I would say, and, and try again tomorrow. But it is difficult because when you think about the, the three-part loop, uh, the external cue, the routine, and the reward. If you struggle to go to the gym at 6 a.m., it could be because the reward is, I just, I love my bed too much, I'm just going to stay here. Even though the cue is the alarm clock goes off, the routine is pull the covers back down, nope, back into the bed again. And the, the fit, it is a weird feeling of success, but it's just that warm, cozy bed, I'm back in it, and I'm going, definitely going to do it tomorrow, I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow. And that becomes your habit, that becomes your routine. Whereas people who go to the gym, they just have a different routine. They have a, maybe the same external cue, the alarm clock goes off. The routine is they just step into the shorts, the socks and the, the runners and the t-shirt. And that's their feeling of success is that they're actually getting it done. So um, he tells a story about uh, Starbucks in the book as well, the, the, the power of habit. He tells a story about uh, Starbucks who use something called the latte method and what they wanted to do was that they wanted to improve their customer service and one of the ways they did it was they had this thing called the latte method l-a-t-t-e and they wanted this to become like a routine or a habit for their uh, their employees and latte stands for listen acknowledge take action thank customer explain why it occurred and one they could teach they could teach their staff this a really simple, easy to remember latte method. It became, it became, it was adopted by their staff because uh, it just became routine that if a problem occurred, if somebody got the wrong drink or um, an order was missed or whatever, they were able to, to de-escalate a situation with a, with a customer because they were able to listen, acknowledge, take action, thank the customer and explain why it occurred. And that is a huge thing for anybody in customer service to be able to think about that latte method. Listen, acknowledge, take action, thank the customer and explain why it occurred. He tells a story as well about the uh, the London Underground in 1987 where somebody reported to a member of staff that there was some burning tissue paper at the end of one of the escalators and uh, nobody took action. The guy who was told about it said, well, that's not really my department. And what they realized that, you know, after I think 31 people died, that nobody had overall responsibility for the safety of the passengers. It was nobody's nobody's job to make sure the passengers were safe. And it becomes like a diffusion of responsibility. You know, the, the Kitty uh, Genovese, I think is her name, the woman who was killed, again, I think in New York, 
many, many years ago, but like 36, there was 36 witnesses to her being brutally murdered over like a 30 or 40 minute period. And there was this diffusion of responsibility. Well, it's not my job, you know, that's just somebody, somebody else would probably call the cops. Similar thing in the London Underground in 1987, where, you know, it's not my job to, that's not my department. And when there was a, uh, an investigation into it afterwards, there was like real clear cut areas where the, the heads of each of those areas of the London Underground were not willing to, uh, to bump up against each other. Everyone was, was siloed. And these habits then became deadly. They talk as well a bit in the book, there's some great psychological things. I haven't got them, I haven't got them all memorized, but there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of great stories and a great kind of places to look for where habits are formed. And a great one, and I'd read about this before, and it's one of those things you can't necessarily believe it because uh, you think that there's no way they know all that about me. But he talks about uh, Target in the US, right, the, the, the shop, right, store, uh, who are collecting terabytes and terabytes of data from customers. You know, when you go in with your loyalty card, it's not just you kind of getting coupons to get money off. They're looking at ex what exactly you've bought, uh, the time of year you're buying it, how frequently you're buying these things. This just, they're crunching this data all the time. And what they decided to do in Target, they had these terabytes of data, right? And ter terabytes a lot, by the way, if you're not technically minded, it's just a ridiculous amount. But they had just, just hard drives full of data about people. And what they decided to do is they decided to use this data to target market uh, expectant mothers and uh, not just the new parents right so if you're if you're you know when you get the things in the door so you use your loyalty card all the time and you know once a month or once every two months they send you an envelope and in that envelope is um you know all the coupons for the things you've been buying lately well what target they target one of the first ones to uh, to do this back in the day and, and it went horribly wrong the first time they did it because uh, they got they got it so right that they actually got in trouble so they started to go after expectant mothers. So expectant mothers like could be things like, um, you know, uh, taking folic acid could be one thing, or uh, sort of give a, a voucher for, you know, 50% off folic acid, or could be buying nappies or uh, baby grows or whatever the things that are that expectant mothers might be thinking about. Uh, they, they started sending coupons for this kind of stuff to, to people. But it went horribly wrong because they sent it to a teenage girl who, as it turned out, was pregnant, but hadn't told her parents and her dad went absolutely crazy because uh, that's how they found out that the, the daughter was pregnant. And Target then realized that they were so good at this that they were actually getting themselves into trouble and they had to be more subtle. So when you think about what you receive from whatever your local uh, supermarket is, your neighbor is getting completely different vouchers. But what you'll probably find, if you look at it the next time you get these vouchers, is... Uh, Look at the ones that matter to you. Like it could be the, the your favorite cheese is on special offer. It could be, um, you know, whatever, right? The, the, the things that you buy are the things they're going to try and entice you to buy more of. But you'll find that they're buried in between things that you've never bought. And they're doing that because of what happened with Target. They're doing that because they don't want to be too obvious about what they're doing. And the whole point of that is that all of us, all of us are ruled by our habits, by our routines. And we're predictable. So... The power of habit is a huge, huge thing. Another thing he talks about in the book as well is that if a DJ, a radio DJ, wants to make a song popular, 
what they'll do is they'll squeeze it in between two familiar songs because people like what's familiar, right? And if something's familiar, then yeah, I probably like it. It sounds like something I've heard before and it becomes popular because uh, it's sandwiched in between two familiar songs. I'll finish on this one. He tells a story about uh, a guy called Brian Thomas in 2008 who strangled his wife, right? Killed his wife, but he was suffering from sleep terrors. And uh, in the dream he was having, this nightmare he was having, he thought his wife was a burglar and uh, woke up like as, you know, as, as he was killing her, I believe. And it was just like an absolutely horrific thing for anyone to, to, to have to go through. Um, but then he compares that to another story, to a, one, a woman called uh, Angie Backman, who was half a million dollars in debt to a casino. But the casino kept sending her uh, offers and kept enticing her back in, even though they knew she had a gambling problem. And she tried to argue that she had no control over because it was an addiction and uh, uh, they were they were doing nothing to help her, basically. And they were kind of um, they, they were the ones who were being uh, deceitful and whatever. The difference between the two stories, though, Brian Thomas, who killed his wife, he didn't know he was going to kill his wife. He didn't know he was suffering from sleep terrors. Whereas Angie Backman, she knew she had a problem. Even though the casino were enticing her and giving her offers, she wasn't taking responsibility. So when it comes to changing habits, the first thing is to realize which habits you are performing every day that are that fall into that, that, that three-part loop. The external cue, the routine that you then follow, and whatever the feeling of success is, whatever that reward is, you need to think about the routine. You need to think about how to change that routine. This is a piece of advice that he ends the book with. And uh, again, it's something I've, I've heard many times. And it's something that I do most of the time. I would say not all the time. But start your day by making your bet. Those small little victories are, are those kinds of things that he talks about. I used to think I didn't care whether the bed was made or not. It didn't bother me at the end of the day. If I got into a bed that was messy, I don't care. Turns out I do care. When the bed is made, it's a nice thing to come home to. And actually, it really is true that you do feel like you are, you, you've achieved something. You've started your day well with this small little win, whatever that thing might be. That's a keystone habit that can build momentum for the day. But you have to take responsibility for the habits that you want to change. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg is uh, just a great book. He is a great writer, great stories, great. He backs it up with, with great statistics and, uh, and experiments well worth a read. So i um, glad I found this book. So um, thanks for listening. Tell two people you know. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about usebecause.com and what we're all about. We believe that true learning happens when you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. So with that in mind, you can get your content served three ways. One, our courses. We've built for you a unique suite of e-learning tools. We take the content from the books, just like the one in this episode, and provide the tools for you to understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. Two, more podcast episodes. Usually it's one a week covering the actionable content from a non-fiction book, just like this episode. 
And finally, our blog, where we write about some of these books and some of our own learnings about the world and how it works. So if you want to go deeper and get more, head over to usebecause.com forward slash subscribe. Until next time.